A little while back, uh, I got hold of Gary and Andy Cronier, who are teachers, South African teachers from Durban, based in China, to get an on-the-ground view of what's going on with the coronavirus. At the time we spoke, which was a few weeks ago, uh, things were not looking good at all. Uh, the cities were ghost towns, everyone staying inside, and they didn't know when they would be going back to school to teach the children. Well, things have changed a lot. We're almost going down to ground zero, if you like, a potential pandemic that has got the whole world scared. For good reason, as you'll hear in the interview, the Chinese have got far more capacity to deal with something like this than most other countries in the world. But let me not get ahead of myself. Let's pick up with Gary and Andy. So how are you holding up? We're fine. Uh, I think... uh there's a popular saying saying, I didn't mean to gain weight. It happened by snack accident. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of snack eating going on. <laughs> but it is, uh, you know, when you're outside of the country, it's very interesting to see how the media is treating it. I see the, uh, the UK press is now getting all excited about coronavirus because there have been four incidences in, uh, in Britain. So I suppose when it hits your own country is the time that everybody else seems to really get the attention. Absolutely. Well, we just um, found, found out that Swaziland had as a one confirmed, confirmed case. case. Oh, that's interesting. That hasn't uh, certainly hasn't been distributed widely here. But tell us about the you know last time we spoke, it looked like. Things were, it looked like the tide might have been turning. I know you talk to lots of people, doctors, etc. What's the the update? Well, I must say, since yesterday, we've seen a high of activities outside, more traffic, more cars, the delivery uh, vehicles. They are they are queued up with deliveries, and um, the the shops. I went this morning to the shops, and there's boxes. All the, lots of fresh stock coming yeah, in. Lots of fresh stock. Everything's been replenished. The, Everything's going. The the fresh food, such, such as vegetables and meat, we were having a lot of. Uh, there was a, a steady supply of that. But some of the more luxury items, we were starting to see them. Imported stuff. Yeah, yes. And, and Coca-Cola, I believe. And Coca-Cola. <laughs> oh. one, of my, uh, one of my students' dads work for Coca-Cola. And he was very happy to send me a message. He says, Andy, I think it was last week, Monday. Yes. He's like, Andy, we're tier one. I can go back to work today. You can have Coca-Cola soon. <laughs> <laughs> so, it wasn't that. There was no Coca-Cola, just in the supermarkets, like your two liters and your 500 mils, or sorry, 600 mils here, yeah. couldn't get. So I was like, oh. <laughs> But that sounds quite positive that you're seeing a lot of activity. Does it mean that? Things are starting to return to normal. It is slowly starting to return to normal. Since we spoke to you last, I think it was on Friday. Yes, Friday they made it official that you can now go and use public transport again. They have uh, they have started buses up and the tax the trains are now back to normal. But you have to produce what they call a green code. So it is through one of our popular payment apps um, such as Alipay. 
in, in China, you do not use cash. I don't even know where my my wallet is. Everything is done on the phone. But you have a an application within the app, and you have to answer certain questions about where you've been, are you well, what's your temperature, and based on this, it will give you a, a green QR code, and that's linked to your ID book, your ID documents. And uh, when you go to public transport, you have to show this. Uh, Gary didn't have one. Um, because he's not, he doesn't have a bank account here. So it was a big story. We were trying to go on the train the other day. It took us 40 minutes to get it, but we, we got it eventually on another application called WeChat. Okay, well, we know WeChat, of course, because Naspers are the biggest shareholders in Tencent. Which yes, WeChat. so yeah. WeChat is absolutely fantastic, and Standard Bank runs the WeChat wallet in South Africa. Okay. So we got one, so we can go through to... The train. So we actually all managed to go out on Saturday. Yes, sir. For the first time in weeks, we all got <coughs> to go out together. Took a train ride and went to a German-owned supermarket quite far from here, just to stock up on some more normal brands. <laughs> but that's quite interesting. the the whole The technology then is giving the Chinese authorities presumably an opportunity to make sure that anyone who's infected or suspected of being infected can't go into public places. Exactly. If you have a yellow or a red code, you they won't let you in. They won't even let you into your apartment building. Yes. So the f- first time we generated the green code, we had to show our, uh, our governing body to make sure they needed to make sure because I think there is a safety regulation that should you fall ill with coronavirus or have it and you've lied on it, it's going to you know, there's obviously going to be ramifications for that. So it's that's, that's quite incredible. So things seem to be, well, uh, outside of China, there's a lot of panic. Uh, there's lots of front page stories now and worries in Italy. I think they've they've cordoned off 11 towns and 50,000 wow. people. And even in Korea, I've got um, some of our friends uh, that live in Korea. Her husband is the bodyguard for the Korean president. And they say everyone is in absolute state. They've had a, an official death due to coronavirus in Seoul. So there's a lot of things going on. They look like they might be going on lockdown too in certain places. Yeah, my daughter teaches English in Korea, and she says it's it's ah. quite difficult now with everybody having to wear. She teaches the little ones, um, six, seven, eight years, yes. and they all have to have their uh, masks on. So she says trying to teach English behind masks is not that easy. But I, I, how's it going with your, t- is really your schools? <laughs> we still haven't resumed work. Uh, I'm doing online classes. Uh, I've been doing online classes for many years. So I have a loyal following of my own students. Um, and they're all still homebound as well. Uh, the kids in our community has been playing downstairs. Our son is actually we gave him the day off from homeschool today <laughs> so he could go ride his bike with everyone. So, uh, was, he not able to, was he not able to do uh, that, no. Andy? Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of the moms and dads have been keeping their children uh, indoors because they've been worried because it's airborne, obviously. But seeing we're all, we've all been issued a green code to stay here, everyone's kind of, uh, it's okay, let them go. Yes. <laughs> and it was a hot day today, first one for a while. And I will only presume work in March. In March? I mean, actually going to yes. the schools themselves. Is is that yes. being confirmed now that the schools reopen in March? 
They're not confirmed yet, but as per my agent, they said hopefully by March. Yes, a lot of the even the universities are offering online courses now. I have uh, some of our friends that are university lecturers. They are currently in uh, Switzerland. They've been told not to come back until further notice. They can teach online. That, that could actually be quite a positive step if you, you can start getting that instilled into the system that people don't have to go to school. Well, in, in China, there is a massive online teaching industry, um, whether it be math, English, science, history. It's amazing. There's just a heck of a lot of online teaching schools already. Mm. So this, uh, the kids are currently having uh, online lessons from their teachers. I know our school has resumed lessons with the local teachers. And then the foreign teachers will take over from, I think, the 1st of March. How do they physically do that? Do they email all the kids and say, here's a link, go in there and, and, and watch your lesson? What happens is they, we, most schools have their own teaching platforms. Uh, so they, they have, we're lucky, my company has recently been bought over by uh, a company that, pro- that provides both online and offline lessons. So we have a platform already uh, in place, but there are a lot, lot of free platforms people can use. We can use Skype, we can use QQ, which is similar to Skype, just the Chinese version. And of course, then there's like XY Link and Zoom. So there's a lot of freeware. Uh, so the teachers would obviously have to communicate with mom and dad and say, oh, well, this is your class time, be on. <laughs> so how have they actually got to this point, uh, Gary, I think in uh, in one of your recent emails, you said that the army had pitched tents outside your building. Has it been that obvious uh, how much the authorities have been involved? Yes, yes, the army has moved in. They they've got pointsmen on on a call. And what happens is, if somebody would be test negative on their temperature, they would be escorted to the the army tent and then escorted to a medical facility. Yeah, there's like a little isolation tent that they would pop you into if you uh, were, if you your temperature was too high. Uh, there's obviously tests that they can do for coronavirus, and uh, they do a throat swab or a, a CT scan. They make sure if you're fine and you just have a cold, then you can go in. <laughs> is it similar to a cold? Is, is that, does it present itself in that way? It does. When when we were sick before Spring Festival, you you obviously do get a temperature. It could it almost looks like bronchitis, but they do a, a swab at the back of your throat. It's rather uncomfortable, and they can also do a CT scan. Wow. Which I must say, these things are much cheaper in China. We had to go for CT scans, and it cost us all of six hundred rand each. <laughs> it was amazing. And you do have friends who are doctors. How are they holding up? They are working themselves to the bone. Uh, they're in different, uh, a lot of them are in different fields, but because they're working at the hospitals, they're pulling long, long shifts. I have everything from endocrinologists to cardiothoracic surgeons, and they say it's crazy. It's unbelievable because people are now in panic mode. When they come to the hospital, everyone's panicking. <laughs> so they're, they're working between 24 to 48 hour shifts. Obviously, they're allowed to sleep between the two, but it's hectic. Yes. They, their wives don't see them for days. Or their husbands. Or their husbands, yes. Wow. 24 to 48 hour shifts. That sounds 
almost like the internship program that you see on Grey's Anatomy and things like that, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yes, because uh, also we have one of our friends, he's um, an orthopedic surgeon in Beijing, and he was exposed to coronavirus. They had uh, they had one in their hospital, and they all had to go through this ice to go into quarantine. Luckily, none of them showed any any results, apart from negative results. And, and what uh, if, but he says it was free. What have the citizens been doing? Have they, have they Has it been almost like a concerted effort of the of the whole community or just some members of the community no everybody has played the game if you see anybody they're wearing a mask they're washing their hands they're staying inside they give you a perimeter they give you personal space they're not rude about it but everybody knows to keep their distance and everybody is happy when you go to the malls they spray your hands for the the, the trolleys they check your temperature and you show your scan, your code, and you allowed to enter. Yeah. So it's a strict control. Nobody is fighting, and everybody is say, "Well, this is what we have to do to we're make this thing it. work, and we're going to do it." And what about washing down the public areas? Is that being done at all? You would presume. Yeah. You told us last yes. time that the Chinese people like to spit. Um, I'm sure that would be a yeah. uh, would be a health hazard. Big no. Absolutely. It's a big no-no. Everyone has put up signs, no spitting. Uh, they have really been very careful about cleaning the public spaces. They had high-pressure hoses out uh, the other day. They've done it three times since we've spoken to you, actually. Um, but about uh, two or three days ago, they came out with big fumigators or pesticide backpacks. Fumicides, yeah. And they were saying to everyone, okay, tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, we are going to be spraying the area. Please stay inside, close your windows. If you hear a big noise, it's just us. I think Gary did send you the videos. You just sort of see them sweeping every nook and cranny that they can find. They even go into our basements here and they sort of just blast everything. Do you know anyone who has contracted the virus or heaven help us, anyone who's died? No. No, thankfully not. not. My, um, I've got a couple of friends that have family in Wuhan that they were saying they were had suspected coronavirus, but thankfully nothing as nothing so bad as to contract it. It's quite scary. Well, if you can look at it, you know, if you you were thinking about Italy's in in this area, England is making a hype about it. America is in a flat spin. It's the amount of money they need to give out to control the virus. In China, you've got 1.3 billion people staying close to each other, and it's a lot of money given out. They have to have suits on. They have to have special equipment, new stuff flown in. Um, it is so, They've done such, such so, well, let's say so much countermeasures, and it cost them so much money, but they said they want to do it, and they want to stop it. Yeah. So that is what made them... I would say, I'll take my hat off to them. They really, really pushed with it. Sounds like an expensive exercise. If, do you think, it you is. guys are South Africans, do you think that our country could handle something like this? Not of this scale. Not at this scale. No. Uh, unfortunately, we know that the healthcare in South Africa is quite skewed uh, between the wealthy people and the uh, not so... Affluent. Affluent people. So it is quite a bit of a problem. I, I don't think public health care would be able to cope with this very well. Um, if I look at the full scale of closing down 
entire cities, <laughs> it would be very difficult in South Africa. So um, let's hope it doesn't come here or doesn't start uh, hope so. expanding. Well, well, South Africa is pretty, uh, well, there's been marked to 0.7%. And, you know, China's GDP has lost all value now for this month, but they will rebound within a month. And coming back to a more personal level of the coronavirus, we have noticed, obviously, with regards to salaries and stuff, uh, that is, we, everyone is having a big problem. A lot of the schools, a lot of businesses are threatening to short pay everyone. Uh, we've, there's been a lot of legal advice being, being looked for recently. We have groups on WeChat and the foreigners are having an absolute fit. <laughs> How can they do that? How can they just not pay people? Bloomberg has has said that it is illegal, um, but what is actually happening in uh, on the ground level is very different. Especially, most of us, our contracts are in Chinese. We have an English contract and we have a Chinese contract, and uh, you know the boss is just like, oh well, there's no money, so we'll just pay your living allowance, and uh, yeah. Good luck. <laughs> and we're like, mm-mm. It <laughs> doesn't work it, like that. Yeah, well, in South Africa it wouldn't, but I guess it, it is a different culture, different country. You don't pitch up for work in China. You don't get paid. And, uh, well, there's a virus going on and you're not allowed to pitch up for work. That's quite a test for the system, I guess. It is. Uh, so there is a bit of, I think there's going to be a lot of legal problems going on. We're seeing a lot of the smaller training centers um, the English training centers are closing. They can't afford to keep keep running with. They're running at a loss now because moms and dads are ruthless in China, and they say, "Okay, no lessons. We want our money back." <laughs> yes. Well, so that's why a lot of schools are converting. <laughs> Just to close off with, I remember last time we we had a chat. You said even Shanghai was uh, was deserted. Nobody was on now. the streets. What's it like now? My friend still says quite, quite quiet. Um, even Shenzhen, which is also one of the, one of the very big cities in China, is quite quiet still. People are are very scared. Uh, they're only going out if they absolutely have to. Andy, Gary, lovely talking with you. Good luck. Um, you aren't rushing off to come home, so clearly things are improving and and looking better. And let's hope that uh, the crisis doesn't hit other countries that, which are perhaps not Absolutely. as well prepared as, as China would be for a, a, an epidemic of this kind. Absolutely. I think uh, they're doing everything they can to contain it. Hopefully, all the measures are not in vain. <laughs> well, the World, Health, World, 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 the World Health Organization, <laughs> sorry, I think they are definitely making plans to say if it hits Africa, if it hits poor countries, We'll have to jump in and do something. So hopefully that does does happen. Yes, because I I know that Iran has had a confirmed case as well, and their health system is not as uh, as sturdy. So the World Health Health Organization will have to stand in if, if necessary. Thank you very much to Andy and Gary Cronier who are talking to us from China and giving some very useful insights, not just for what might happen were the virus to spread, but also for people in South Africa who can see that without the kind of work that the Chinese government has been able to effect, uh, it could be a pretty serious thing. When I contacted David Shapiro this morning, 
he was saying words of a little stronger than oy vey, look at the screen, uh, when he saw all the red ink on his prices page on the JSC today, having just one of its worst days in a long time. It appears as though the coronavirus is playing a big role and other issues as well are affecting Mr. Market, who's now suddenly gone very negative on South Africa. Uh, most of the indices down by 3% or more, excepting, of course, the gold shares, who've uh, had a, a big bounce. And in this conversation, our weekly wrap-up with South Africa's favorite market commentator, we talk about the market generally and then focus on financial results that came out today from Sassel. These were for the half year to the end of December, where the headline earnings collapsed by 72%. Earnings before interest and tax were down 53%, and it was caused by a reduction in the rand price of oil, 9% down that was, and it has a direct impact on Sassel's profits, but more so through the negative contribution from the Lake Charles Chemicals Project, where if you add it all up, it came to something like 5 billion rand direct impact on the bottom line. And considering that Sassel's headline earnings in this half year was less than 5 billion rand altogether, it shows you what an impact Lake Charles, uh, the Louisiana Chemicals Plant Project, is having on the group. But here's David. So what's going on on the screen that's oy, making you oy, so confused? No, no, I mean, it's been absolutely hammered. You know, global markets as well. I mean, I think they were a little too complacent on the coronavirus, on the outcome. And I think the reality is hit, you know, is just beginning to uh, dawn. And I think we know it's going to happen, and these things tend to be short-lived. But when it happens, it's scary. You know, it's... Mm. Uh, and, and Alec, the, the markets today are driven by algorithms and, you know, traders and um, high speed or high frequency trading. So the movements are exaggerated in both directions. But you live through it, you know. You, you well, I, I would have thought that's the opportunity if Mr. Market is now hugely in contrast. I'm just exactly. looking at my screen. It says all share yeah. down 3.5%. The yeah. gold's yeah. indexed up 7 yeah. So you've got to... Uh, Mr. Market is in full cry, he's panicking, yeah, running into exactly. gold. Uh, uh, but Absolutely. yet, earlier in the program, I spoke with uh, Gary and Andy Cronier in China. Uh, they're South African teachers in China, and they say that it's actually turned. People are allowed out of yeah. their houses again, they're, yeah. going to, yeah. they're in their subways. Yeah. It's almost yeah. like, you don't want to you know, uh, jinx it, but it's almost like Corona, the worst is yeah. over. Well, in, in China it is, but there was this lockdown in Italy, which is causing the, the problems and also the escalation in South Korea. But we're not talking massive escalation. You know, we're just talking, uh, there was in a certain area in Milan, it seemed to be spreading. So they locked down 50,000 people there. And, uh, that's caused a bit of a panic. So, you yeah. know, you just throw, I say, okay, <laughs> you know done this before each year we get something like this you just got to you just got to take it in your stride and um and you know I'd, you don't want to argue against the market but uh, on the other hand you don't want to be caught up in the panic but you don't want to go and join mr market david i mean no, that's no, how warren no, buffett has no, become a great investor no, by know, ignoring mr market and looking at I the know. fundamentals you know totally and, and 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 i'm saying the problem is that uh, you know we have to comment on it all the time and you'd rather say you know 
do me a favour, just leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) Now, why would Richmond drop 4.5%? Surely if it was going to drop, it would have dropped in the past uh, because China uh, was a problem. Because they've closed uh, luxury goods, um, which rely heavily on on Chinese consumption. It's going to come under pressure in this quarter. There's also issues with supply chain, particularly in the luxury goods world. Not necessarily Richemont, not necessarily Kering, which is Gucci or LVMH. Uh, but other other brands. So I think it spreads, and uh, there's a fear that with Hong Kong under pressure and China under pressure, demand's going to come down. So it's hurt luxury in a big way because of the association of the Chinese with uh, luxury buying. But that's all in the market. It should be totally. in, the, in the market already. I see what wasn't in the market totally. was Sasser, yeah. and yeah. it's taken a yeah. hammering today on those results. Yeah. What, yeah. what did you make of the interims that came out this morning? They, look, they are a lot worse than we thought. And one's got to go through them in, in a lot more detail. Um, I'll be honest, I've been uh, preoccupied with the market and uh, just handling certain issues. But I did read the headlines. And, Alec, the problem, you know, you know, you know what's, what's, what's bothered me is that um, they say that a lot has to do with macroeconomic environment. And they saw a 9% decrease in the RAND value of uh, – uh, per barrel of oil, so that's quite uh, operationally. That's that's you know that's quite distressing. But also, I, th- I think the bigger worry is chemical prices, which they see down for uh, you know for, for for the next twelve to forty months. And remember, Sasol is no longer classified as a call it an oil company. They like to classify themselves now as a chemical company because of their production of chemicals, and also that the Lake Charles project is solely reliant on chemical prices. So I think that's where the damage is really being done. But to be fair, we, we're at levels that we haven't seen since 2005, 2006 yeah, in the yeah. share price. And below 200 rand per Sassel share. That yeah. is, sure, you've got to go back, as I you know. say, 15 years for that. And, 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 you know, this is a big company. This is a company of which we've been incredibly proud as South Africans. Um, mainly because of their, uh, you know, their technology that they develop and, um, and also because of what they meant for South Africa. You know, it started off admittedly in the back in the fifties when it was formed as a, as a hedge against, uh, sanctions and the apartheid government. But subsequent to that, it's developed into a world class business. But of late, we've been seriously let down. Have you and met, I, have you met or had anything to do with a new CEO? No. No, I don't know them at all. Keeping a low profile, doesn't it? I know, I know. And, and, and I think the numbers that are coming out now are just pointing towards a lot of, uh, a lot of weaknesses in management or previous management. You know, suddenly I think the cracks are beginning to form. And that's why, that's a worry. That's a worry. But let's, let's be honest about that. If you're the new CEO, you clear Mm. the decks. I mean, it's it's a, it's an old story that they do. Mm. So if you, if you thought you might have to, um, provide against a potentially dodgy debt. You just provide against it if you're the new guy because you can blame it on the old people. You can. And and listen, the Lake Charles project is also just battling to, you know, to come right. And I think they're a lot, you know, they reckon that they'll be profitable in the second half. Uh, but I think, I think what's, what's, what's troubling uh, which no one foresaw is that, uh, you know, the chemical prices, you know, the, in other words, the end product, is a lot lower than they forecast. And therefore, the returns on the amount that they've invested are pretty low. And you have to write it down to those 
you know, you have to write it down to those levels. But Cecil is now trading. I'm just trying to see its, 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 its market value. I mean, this is a company that was easily within the top 10, 15. It's down at 124 billion rand, which is uh, about half the value, you know, that, that we generally associated with Cecil. Yes. So it's, it's really fallen, you know, it's, it's really fallen down the ladder. On the upside, uh, we said yeah. a moment ago that uh, the new CEO, Fleetwood Krobler, would yeah. clearly have cleared the decks as much mm. as he could. On the upside, he's not going to make a forecast like Lake Charles will break even in the second no. half of the year if he isn't absolutely no. certain about no, it. No, 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 no. So I know that's... Um, yeah, I know. That's uh, that 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 we have to look forward to. So maybe I've got, like, I've got to like, go through the detail. You know, yeah. you know what happens. You can't. You you've actually got to go through page by page and 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 get a feel for. It's a big company with a lot of um, you know areas of business, and you've got to get a feel for each one of those. But I I, I must admit, I, it's it's thrown me off course. And also the analysts, no one foresaw this. You know, nobody has come out and been highly negative on Cecil. You know, no one's, everyone, you know, most, most analysts, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, this is a broad kind of uh, a generalization. I think when the shares were up at the 250 and 260, 270 area, I think everybody saw that as a, as a buying opportunity and had targets of 330 a share, you know, three, uh, uh, 330, 400, even higher than that. So this has really caught everybody off guard. As has the little jump in, not little, substantial jump in the gold price and the Mm. gold shares. Mm. The gold bugs are having a good time of it, Dave. Mm. Uh, Would you be climbing on their bandwagon? Maybe. (laughs) I'm not going to ignore it, and I'm I'm far from a gold bull. (laughs) From a trading point of view, uh, you can't ignore where this is going. But it's not my style. I'm not a, you know, you buy a chunk of gold and, uh, you know, so you buy gold as protection and you hold it and uh, that's it. You know, I'm, it's it's not my style. I, I'm, um, I must admit, I'm, I look a lot more forward than that. I like to look three, four, five years down down the line. And I say there's a fascinating piece in The Economist this weekend. Uh, this the current economist about what they call the digital economy, which I think everybody should read to get an idea of where global economies are moving. And that's where I would focus. You know, I'd say, oh, this is fascinating because this is going to, this is a big disruptor and it's going to change the way that we, you know, just the way that we live and the way that economies work. So that's where I'd be focusing. And would I buy gold against that? Probably not. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to interpret what they're saying and say, okay, where does one, where does one position oneself? And where do you, you know, where do you find the companies that are going to be well, you know, well organized in this respect? Yeah, the problem about buying an inanimate object is that you're yeah. going completely against the whole idea of companies mm. which are supposed to be scaled by the human ingenuity. That's what you're really <laughs> supposed to be investing in, not inanimate yeah. objects. Uh, yeah. that's, that's, what you have, that's what's so fascinating about it, is that um, um, Alec investors are putting, or let's put it this way, analysts or certainly economists are trying to put value to the amount of data. You know, what value can we put to this Object that they're uh, that they're creating now or gathering, 
and and how is it best put to use? Because you know today with with computerization, with uh, I mean the sophisticated tools that one has, it enables you to um, you know to run businesses so differently from the past in a much more efficient way. So it and and also to understand the consumer. And what's interesting is people just give the data away. They're quite happy. <laughs> if you say to them, just fill out this form and we'll give you, we'll give you a half an hour extra uh, data or we'll give you one week's data. Yeah, okay, I'll fill out the form. You know, I'll tell you about my life. <laughs> and all of that information is used, you know, it's, it's used to understand how people are, are thinking and operating and buying and so on. Yeah, but just to close off with David, mm. the, uh, the market as a whole has had a mm. horrible start. It's rich yeah. everywhere. Uh, this too shall pass. Uh, will you yes. be Will you be uh, picking up some of your favourites oh, on a absolutely. day like today? Absolutely, no doubt. Just got to wait. Don't be too you know. You don't have to be too hasty. But I think there's 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 no doubt that it's going to throw up opportunities. Um, I, I you know I think this this will pass for the first time. You've got to look at South Africa from a from a value point of view, you know, and I think I think that private equity is going to come in, or alternatively, companies will say, "I've had enough. I want to go private." And and I think, Alec, you know, you've been around a long time, like me. There are companies like Afrox, like Nampac, like ArcelorMittal, you know, businesses that are are real bricks and mortar businesses and have been, you know, have 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 a long history, whose whose prices are are trading on the market at at literally fire sale price, you know, fire sale levels. So, I think that from this point of view, one's got to just do a lot more homework on the SA market from that point of view. And my favourite stock of the moment is Discovery. I, yes. Uh, after going through the results carefully and uh, having a, a lovely interview with Adrian Gore, I'm really enthused about the potential of this business and where it's positioned. I know we've had conflicting views on it in the recent mm-hmm. times, but at around 100 rand a share? Yeah. Now, this is a level that you can buy them. <laughs> now, this is, that, when they come down to these levels, I think so. You know, he's... He's got an incredibly bright uh, management team. I think perhaps the brightest in the country, and uh, the energy levels as well. What worries me is what what I say. Where where I'm concerned is that the South African economy is not in their favour, and that's hurting their traditional businesses. You know, that's that's the worry of 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 Adrian. There's nothing he can do to turn it around, but you can't take away innovation from them and where they're heading. And if you look in the detail of those mm. financial results, David, mm. it's absolutely amazing what they've managed to achieve outside of South Africa. Yeah. Uh, in yeah. South Africa, well, they had the, the uh, life office, mm. the life operations in the UK that affected the overall picture uh, at the interim mm. stage. But if you look at the progress they've made in America with John Hancock, in China, mm. Uh, mm. Uh, obviously in China with Ping'an, which is their biggest bet by far. Mm. Um, mm. Y- you know, Dave, they're reaching... 32 million people on their app in China. Mm. 32 mm. million people. Mm-hmm. Just put that in the South African context. Yeah. It's, well, everybody over the age of, what, 10, yeah. maybe. In South Africa. <laughs> in South Africa. And they're yeah. only starting there. The, yeah. the management there are looking at a 10 times target from where they are at the moment. Yeah. And if yeah. you start absorbing this from a global perspective, this is a stock that, that just jumps yeah. out at me and says, please buy. At 100 Rand. Wow. I think I see the innovation. My daughter Karen works there. She's been in with them for fifteen years in New York. 
And well, she, you know, they, they, they operate out of Chicago. She's in New York and she's mainly on the Apple side. She's on a lot of different projects. And from that point of view, you can't take the enthusiasm away and their focus. Uh, the trouble is they've got to start monetizing that and, you know, hopefully down the line that's going to happen. But they are, you know, at the, at the moment it's, 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 it's a bit tough in South Africa and which are their traditional businesses and the businesses that, that gave them the base. But you've got to watch them for innovation and you've got to commend them for that. Exceptionally bright people. Well, as uh, I've been on my own globalization journey for a period of time, I know how tough it is to crack into these international markets and what they're doing in China is it simply defies belief when you have a look at the share price of Discovery today, knowing the decision that they've taken there to not generate profits, to only look at a 1% profit margin in their partnership with Pingan because they're going from the 10 billion RMB turnover to 100 billion is their focus. That gives you an understanding of where Discovery is aiming for, not where it's going to get to, but where it's aiming for. An amazing story. As if South Africa needed any more shocks about the load shedding from Eskom, over the weekend we heard from a couple of experts, Ted Blom, who's been very outspoken, and Mike Rousseau, another insider uh, who knows the Eskom story well, that load shedding could continue for five years and that replacing the mistakes that were made at Madupi and Kusili, uh, the two supposed flagships in the Eskom fleet that uh, have been constructed at massive cost overruns, that those issues could cost literally more than a trillion rand. I wanted to find out today from our go-to man on all things electricity, electrical engineer Chris Yelland, how much uh, credence we can give to the reports that came out and indeed do we start banking on 18 to 24 months of load shedding as the government is telling us or five years plus that private sector uh, experts are suggesting. Gee Chris there's been a lot of uh, discussion over the weekend and last week about these design faults at Kusile and Madupi. It wasn't long ago that we had a message from the president saying what a wonderful installation uh, Madupi was, mm. best in the world, he was, he was claiming. Wow, mm. it's been an expensive one, though. Yeah, and it's brought Eskim to its knees. Um, the bulk of the 450 billion rand debt, which, as we know, is completely unsustainable, is as a result of cost overruns uh, at Madupi and Kusili. Uh, so far from these being um, you know, these wonderful, beautiful projects, they are actually becoming the downfall um, of ESCOM, uh, which is uh, really tragic. Um, uh, but that's the way it is. There are cost overruns of $450 billion, as you say, or to, close to that order, which has given ESCOM all this debt. But that you can kind of live with if they've built something that is fit for purpose. But more and more we're understanding now that in fact, that's not the case. There were construction deficiencies, that design faults that are going to take enormous amounts of money to fix if they can be fixed. Yeah, you see, um, the problem at the moment, we're having load shedding, uh, you know, in the last week and uh, in the previous weeks, is that the availability of Eskom's uh, coal-fired fleet of power stations is decreasing. Um, and, of course, that is also a result of the fact that the old power plants are getting older. They have been poorly maintained, 
but many of them are reaching end of life uh, and should be uh, decommissioned uh, you know, in coming years. But the new plant coming on stream is not performing like new plants. It's performing like old plants uh, and has some of the worst energy availability factors of the fleet. And that is because, as you say, there are significant uh, problems with both the design, construction, the execution of these projects. Uh, and the uh, problems are such that we will probably never be able to operate the plant at full output, at the design output they should have uh, been delivering uh, by now. Now, Chris, this begs another big question. The ANC profited directly from Hitachi, who were, well, the lead uh, instigators of these plants, and presumably the people at whom I think the United Nations and certainly the U.S. have already pointed fingers at them. Uh, what happens now? If you've got a contractor who's messed it up, surely as, a, as the person who paid for it, in this case the South African public, you've got some kind of claim against them. Well, unfortunately, it's not quite so simple. Um, the thing is that uh, normally on a mega project like this, uh, the customer, ESCOM, or in fact, ESCOM Generation is the customer. Eskom would have appointed what is known as an EPC main contractor, engineering, procurement, and construction main contractor. And this uh, contractor, these are very experienced project companies. They operate globally. They take on these mega projects. And their responsibility is the activities that go on in such a construction on site uh, and to deliver a working system lock, stock, and barrel to take responsibility for the overall design, uh, engineering, procurement of all the equipment, and uh, placing of all the contracts and subcontracts, and generally coordinating everything and making it work as one system to be handed over to the customer in due course. Now, Eskom, in its wisdom, decided to take the role of being the EPC main contractor on itself. Mm. And it then placed a number of subcontracts, or you might call them main contracts, but they really are, they are individual contracts that ESCOM placed. It therefore takes on the role of the EPC main contractor, the responsibility for coordinating, integrating the whole system. And this was done by ESCOM Capital Projects, which is a separate division to ESCOM Generation. So what you have here is ESCOM Capital Projects being the EPC main contractor, and Eskom Generation being the customer. Now, that saves about 10% of the contract value. That's probably why Eskom decided to go this route. It felt it had the skills. It had done this before, many years earlier, uh, and that it, had, uh, uh, that it saw no reason why it should appoint uh, a main contractor who would take 10% of the contract value. So... In the end, of course, this is penny wise and pound foolish because when you have a cost overrun of 100%, <laughs> you know, it makes the 10% price of the EPC main contractor look small. But ultimately, Eskom is the responsible party. The buck stops with Eskom. So it appoints the main contractors, uh, the boiler contractor, the turbine contractor, the civil work contractor, uh, the instrumentation and control uh, contractor. And it, uh, in its wisdom, appoints them and it takes on that legal responsibility for it. Of course, it does have, claim, have claims against its contractor, contractors, but it's never, 
so simple uh, as uh, black and white. Uh, there are many shades of gray in between, uh, finger pointing, and uh, a lot of the blame can uh, be laid. Not all of the blame, but some of the blame can be laid at the EPC main contractor's door, and that's ESKIM itself. So you get into these complex legal disputes, which ultimately result in arbitration. Okay, Chris, I, I get it. The ESKIM now had this EPC, so they were the, the ultimate responsibility, or people in that were ultimately responsible. But when you step away and you look at it just from the public's perspective, if those people on the EPC were corrupt or corrupted, then you can see quite clearly why things would have gone wrong. If they were incompetent, you can also see why things would have gone wrong. The question, I guess, has to be, were we, the taxpayers, properly served in the people who were put onto the EPC to make these enormous decisions? Clearly not, because there was a mixture of uh, incompetence, inexperience, lack of uh, the necessary skills, uh, as well as corruption. We've seen massive corruption, uh, you know, at Kosili Power Station particularly, uh, and I'm sure there are, there is more still to come. Uh, but ultimately the public were not well served. Um, uh, but, uh, you, know, you know, trying to re- recoup these losses is, is a difficult, painful business uh, and perhaps will never be achieved uh, in full or even in part. But who were these EPC members? Because it appears as though that's where the rot began. Well, you may know recently um, the uh, Director of National Prosecutions have in fact and charged uh, a number of key people at Kusili Power Station. Uh, to be honest, I, I, I don't think these are necessarily, uh, you know, uh, the top of the pile. Um, as always, uh, there are kingpins and people below them and layers um, of, of people who are involved in this kind of thing. And sometimes very, uh, to pinpoint and to prosecute and to prove complicity of the people right at the top. Uh, but certainly the head of capital projects uh, is one of the persons uh, who was arrested, uh, Mr. Abram Masango. Uh, and I must stress he hasn't been convicted yet, uh, but he has been charged uh, with uh, crimes. Uh, and the people reporting to him uh, within the capital project structure uh, have been arrested. Uh, but as I say, I think to some extent that this is the tip of an iceberg. Why, Chris? Well, I think there are a lot of people that still uh, must be shaking in their boots right now. Um, I don't want to mention names, uh, but I think the names uh, are pretty obvious if you look at the executives at Eskom who have been fired over the, over this period. Um, and and uh, but they haven't yet been charged, so I'm reluctant to mention their names. So all you needed to do, if you were the Guptas, was to control the EPC, even to control the board. And many of the members of the board who have subsequently re- resigned had close links with the Guptas and their empire. Uh, they are now, uh, have been removed. Uh, but these are the kind of people I'm talking about when I say I don't want to mention names, uh, but you just have to look at the people who have been removed or fired. Uh, I'm talking about members of the board as well as senior executives within ESCO. So let me understand this correctly. The problem, the major problem that Eskom has is facing at the moment is that it's overspent on the two new power stations that were supposed to come along and replace much of the old fleet that is that is uh, has to be 
at some point in time closed down. Those power stations, the construction and design and the cost thereof was determined by Eskom itself. So if you're in the board, on the board and you corrupt and crooked, you can put the right people, in inverted commas, onto the different areas that allocate the construction uh, uh, amounts, and the whole system works in your favor and against the nation. That's exactly, that's exactly the case. Um, so, yes, there have been these massive cost overruns. Uh, They're well-known, well-documented. Um, the problems uh, at Madhuke and Kusili, the technical uh, design um, and execution problems, are reasonably well known in the public domain. For example, uh, a recent uh, letter to me, uh, which was published uh, by uh, several publications, including your own, uh, detailed uh, problems with the uh, mills, that is the coal mills that grind the coal into powder. Uh, they are the, of the wrong design. Uh, they were changed, the design, there was a design change, um, even though the original specification specified the right design, with the agreement of ESCOM, the design was something that was unsuitable, to save money, and perhaps for kickbacks. And the same thing happened with the boilers. The boiler height is too low. Uh, this is resulting in technical problems such as over-temperatures in the boiler, which prevent the boiler from operating at full rated output and also cause damage to things like the fabric filters that remove um, uh, fly ash from the flue gas that goes up the chimney. Uh, these are fabric filters, and if the flue gas is too hot, uh, they deteriorate quicker and they result in more pollution, excessive downtime for changing of the bags and in these fabric filters. Uh, so all of these um, issues, uh, a number of issues resulting from di- design faults can flow uh, from these design faults into numerous other areas of the plant, and these uh, problems are extremely difficult uh, to rectify after the event. Uh, it's almost inconceivable that they could shut down Madupi uh, and uh, rebuild the boilers it, it is such a major design change that probably we're going to have to live with the reduced output from these power plants for the next 40, 50 years. And the effect price of electricity from these power plants is much higher than it should be because you're not delivering the amount of kilowatt hours that you should over the lifetime of the plant, but you're stuck with these double costs, double the price and less output that the price per kilowatt hour goes up over the lifetime of the plant. Chris, the uh, suggestion by two commentators, Ted Blom and Mike Rousseau, over the weekend that we'll have five years of load shedding. Is that an exaggeration? Well, I don't know. It's not what Eskom is telling us uh, right now. And um, Eskom are essentially talking about two years of load shedding. But, you know, I don't think anybody knows. Um, it will depend, uh, certainly, on uh, on how quickly and if it is possible to get these new power plants performing like new plants should be performing. Uh, that's the one aspect. The other aspect is how quickly the procurement process can proceed for new generation capacity, uh, bearing in mind the very cumbersome, uh, almost dinosaur-like procurement processes that uh, we have in South Africa in the central command and control type of procurement uh, where we have a national plan and then we uh, 
Uh, we have to get concurrence by NERSA. And then we have to do a public pro- procurement in terms of the Public Finance Management Act. Uh, and finally, we start construction, and then there are cost overruns and time overruns. And we've seen how long it's taken for Madupi and Kusili. Uh, and uh, these large projects, uh, it's not unusual to have these kind of overruns, uh, but certainly Madupi and Kusili have been certainly extreme examples. Chris Yelland bringing us up to date on exactly what's behind the well, chaos that one sees in the South African electricity sector at the moment. Over the past few weeks, we've been telling you about our business partners at Bright Light Solar, and uh, in particular with through interviews with Kevin Shames. Well, Kevin uh, joins us again today in the pre-close of the prospectus. The prospectus closes finally on Thursday. So if you like the idea of Bright Light Solar, and there's a lot to like about it, you better get your transfers made by Thursday morning at the latest uh, because it closes off on Thursday evening. Uh, I asked Kevin to just give us some more insight into how things have been going there. He's very excited about uh, the reaction from the business community and from investors generally. They've gone well beyond the minimum amount that was required in terms of the prospectus. So it definitely is a go. Any money that is invested will uh, be put into the firm. There's a 21% return that is being offered by Bright Light Solar, um, and we also touched on that in this conversation. Well, Kevin, it's been quite a journey over the past few weeks as we've been unpacking Bright Light Solar and the prospectus and the opportunities that are available to investors in this 12J company. And it's nearly at the end. Uh, Your prospectus closes on Thursday. It does. Five o'clock Thursday, we'll know exactly how much money we've raised. And for people who are wanting to invest, and we can talk a little about that in a moment, but how... uh, if they want to wake up on Friday morning and want to send you money, is that too late? It is too late. Uh, five o'clock Friday is the official closing time. And uh, in terms of our prospectus, we cannot accept um, any any subscriptions after that Sorry, time. Sorry, f- five o'clock Thursday. Is that all five got? o'clock Thursday. Thursday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And just going back to the how, if you want to participate how do you do that? Do you, nobody sends checks anymore, but uh, is, there, is there details in the prospectus on how to get the money through? So there, there are details. Uh, Biz News has kindly uh, created a landing page, so anyone that wants uh, to, to subscribe can go via Biz News or alternatively can go to our website, which is brightlightvcc.co.za. Uh, and just ask there for us to send you all the, all the forms. Uh, really easy, a couple of pages to fill out, uh, some FICA documents that we need, obviously, in terms of uh, our compliance requirements, and uh, probably in total, uh, the admin around it will take you about 10 minutes. Hmm. So we know that you are projecting a return of 21% uh, per annum uh, effective after tax, but what exactly would people who are going to be generating that return be investing in? So they're investing in a Section 12J company uh, called Bright Light VCC, VCC being Venture Capital Company. Uh, and we then use that capital to invest in fully funded renewable energy projects. 
so what we are doing in this capital raise, we are investing in solar PV to generate electricity for our customers, in solar thermal to provide hot water solutions, uh, in atmospheric water generation, which provides filtered possible drinking water to our customers. And we now are even moving into waste management. So uh, we are becoming a full service utility to our customers. Our, our primary target customers are the gated estates, so sectional title body corporates and homeowners associations. We also do uh, commercial, industrial, and, and agricultural uh, solutions, but our primary target market is the gated estate market. And then we sell them those utilities, energy, water, hot water, over a long period of time at substantial discounts to what they would currently be paying to their existing utility provider, and uh, that that revenue we then use to pay back to our investors in the form of semi-annual dividends. So, in effect, you, uh, if you're investing in bright light solar, that money goes to put an installation into a gated community, and the gated community don't pay for it, but then they will pay you like a utility for the for the electricity, say uh, that it generates. Exactly. So, so what are the benefits of a utility are highly predictable future cash flows. You know that your customers are going to use your services over the long term. Uh, they're highly predictable cash flows. We can predict with a reasonable degree of certainty what those cash flows are going to be. And that really is the beauty of this product. When you bundle that together with the very significant tax benefits through Section 12J, and the opportunity for an investor to sell their shares at the beginning of year six or any time thereafter, those returns then combine into an effective IRR of 21%. All right, so you made an important point there. Uh, the investor will only be able to sell out in year six. Yes, yeah, so uh, this is a uh, effectively a locked-up investment. There are restrictions on liquidity imposed by the Income Tax Act that says you have to hold this investment for a full five-year period. Uh, if you sell within that five-year period, then there is a recoupment of that upfront 12-day allowance. So you can sell, but then you're going to get all the tax benefits that you received uh, are going to be reversed effectively. Correct. Okay. And what tax benefits do you receive and how quickly? So the investor receives a 12-J allowance where they get to deduct the full cost of their investment against their taxable income in the current tax year. Uh, that, that's the tax year that ends on actually on, on Saturday, but I guess for most people on Friday. Um, and you get to deduct that off your taxable income in if, if you're a provisional taxpayer in your second provisional payment that you would be making now uh, this week. Uh, if you are a PAYE taxpayer, then as soon as you submit your e-filing uh, for your tax, re your tax return for the period end the 29th of February 2020, uh, once that's assessed, you then get that money back. So it's relatively quick. Mm. And uh, hence the closing of your prospectus just a couple of days before the tax year ends uh, to give people the opportunity to work out what taxable income they have. Uh, then to in make the investment, then you get the tax right back and you'll be getting dividends thereafter? Yes, yeah, so we pay dividends every six months for the period ended August and February. So our first dividend will be paid at the end of September this year uh, for, the, for, for new investors. 
existing investors would obviously still continue to get their own dividends. But for new investors, the first dividend payable end of September for the six months ended August, and we pay dividends every six months thereafter. Uh, and that initial dividend yield for year one is between six and six and a half percent. And that then grows uh, as we deploy that capital. So you're looking at about a nine to nine and a half percent dividend in year two. And that then grows thereafter. That's a long way from 21. How do you get to 21 percent? So the 21 is calculated through the 45% upfront tax benefit. So we are assuming that this is for a marginal taxpayer, someone who's paying tax at the rate of 45%. And that, uh, so you you get, let's assume you invest a million rand, you get back 450,000 rand in very quick time. And that obviously has a very important impact on those returns. Uh, Thereafter, those dividends are uh, paid semi-annually. So starting at around 6.5%, growing through to uh, about 12.5% in year five. And then when you sell, then obviously there is that, uh, that capital receipt back in your hands, and then you do have to pay capital gains tax on that, uh, which we've taken into account in that 21% after-tax return. And there is a minimum amount that you can put in? There is a minimum. The minimum uh, is 100000 uh, we have actually dropped that to 50,000 Rand uh, now because we, we did extend our closing. It was meant to be closing tomorrow. We extended it to Thursday because we do have a large fund of fund that is allocating to us. So we needed to facilitate uh, their investment. So we can actually accept 50,000 Rand minimums. Uh, up until Thursday's close. And how has the, I know there's been enormous interest from the business community, but you've got to get fecared and you've got to actually put the cash on the table. How has the reaction been in the practical sense? So Alec, what I can tell you is that the money is flowing in very actively at the moment. When I look at where we are today versus at this time last year, we are substantially ahead. Uh, but really it all happens now in the last four days. Uh, you know, most investors will hang on to their cash until the last uh, moment as they should because they'd be earning interest on that money. So really we are expecting the bulk of the investments to, to hit our bank account on Wednesday and Thursday this week. Mm. And don't leave it till Friday because the law says you can't, put, you can't take it in. Correct. Kevin, it's been uh, interesting working with you through these past few weeks and uh, look forward to keeping our community members updated on the performance of Bright Light Solar. I'm sure you've got lots of other tricks up your sleeves. Thank you, Alec, and uh, we've loved working with you and with the community. Your your community is incredibly engaging, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. Every fortnight I like to talk to somebody who's a bookworm like I am and uh, self-confessed and avowed lover of libraries and anything uh, in the hard copies. If you want to send me a present, my family know. They know exactly where to go. Exclusive books. Roger Jardine is the chairman of First Rand and he's even more of a bookworm than I am. He tells us a little about his love of books in this interview but particularly looks at Two books, the one he's reading at the moment and a recent one that he likes to recommend to us. The one he's reading is called Crisis of Conscience. It's all about whistleblowing, what could be more appropriate for the South Africa of today. And then he goes back to tell us about a book that I've got on my shelf and haven't yet gotten to, 
Malcolm Gladwell's latest. It's a fascinating conversation. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it, even if you don't like books. Roger, from the people I've spoken with, uh, you Mm -hmm. are a bit of a bookworm like me. Um, Where did your love of books come from? Um, You know, just growing up... um my my father used to read the newspapers a lot and he enjoyed books, you know. So I think really just growing up around in an environment where reading and learning was valued and treasured, you know. Mm. And and you, well, we've asked you to talk to us about your book that you're reading at the moment. So clearly you still do consume. How, how many books do you read, do you think, in a week or a year or a month? Uh, look, I, I read several a year, but it's intermittent because I go through very busy patches. And so I I would read long-form articles. Um, I think something else I should share with you is that my wife is an author, so I'm surrounded by books and writing and literature. So. Well, you chose well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess nowadays you have to go through, as a chairman of First Round, it's a huge group. There must be lots of uh, board packs that you have to worry about before you can indulge in, in books. But what are you reading at the moment? What's what's the one next to your bed? So currently I'm reading a book called Crisis of Conscience, which is about whistleblowing in an age of fraud. It's a book I recently started reading. Mm. Um and I'm sort of early through this book. But the one which I thoroughly enjoyed reading over the holidays was Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. And I'd like to talk about both of them to you. Brilliant. Brilliant. Mm. I've actually bought Talking to Strangers. I haven't oh, yet good. got around to it. It's it's there. I think yes. it's number three on the pile but uh, <laughs> to get to. But um, I'm, I'm reading one at the moment uh, by Bill Bryson. Well, in fact, I'm reading three books at the moment. Uh, you know how, right. how it goes. But the uh, one by Bryson called The Body a user's guide. It's amazing. It's absolutely incredible about this thing we all possess that I've never really understood. And uh, and he's such a good writer. But that glad, glad all one. I'm looking forward to hearing your your thoughts on it. But let's start good. with Crisis of Conscience. Yes. Um, so Crisis of Conscience is a book about whistleblowing and whistleblowers, and um, it basically looks at several. Uh, major corporate events or scandals and the people who essentially brought them to light in the first place. And they, they, it's, a, it's, it's quite a, a timely book just given where we are in South Africa and indeed uh, the state of the world. In fact, the um, shout out on the back sleeve of this book that caught my eye by Daniel Ellsberg, who wrote Doomsday Machine, he says, that whistleblowers are the lifeblood of a republic. Ah. And uh, if you think of it that way, um, then you see why it's such an important aspect of our democratic discourse that we take this more seriously, you know. That's incredible. And we've had some unbelievably brave people in South Africa, brave whistleblowers. Most of them seem to be female, seem to be women, though. Are Are you finding a similar trend in this book? Um, no, this this is quite mixed. I mean, it's, as I said, it's early going. The um, the one instance that uh, really fascinated me was about a whistleblower in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, it's a guy. He he picks up a two thousand dollar deposit into 
so he works for the Office of the Inspector General in the state of Pennsylvania. And he picks up a $2,000 deposit in someone's account. And this person happens to be part of a team that approves pharmaceuticals in state hospitals and children's homes, and that sort of thing. And he takes you on a journey into what he uncovers is the role between uh, big pharma and state uh, governments and how um, decisions around which drugs to recommend for hospitals and orphanages and so on are driven by essentially getting these decision makers into the loop and to be part of a system of growing <laughs> state procurement, if you will. That's so interesting because we in South Africa are still babes in the wood when it comes to the sophistication of the bribery. We've seen that in, in so many instances where people have been caught out through pretty coarse, the Gupta's an example, uh, bribing that they were doing, whereas in the United States, in a, a far more entrenched, more sophisticated society, you just take the number of lobbyists they have in Washington, for instance. 30,000 people don't get paid top dollar to not influence politicians. Um, but in, yeah. this, in this case, it, it, it sounds like there's, well, some cracks in this cozy relationship between big farmer and, and government. Yes, and there, there are a number of I've, – I've just started a chapter on the 2008 financial meltdown, and it opens brilliantly with an email from one of the um, – underwriters at the major bank who sends an email to his board in 2007 to say to some members of the exco and the management team to say look i've been studying i've been studying the situation and there's a problem here you know and it takes you through uh what happens a year later with a financial meltdown and this guy's journey and how he gets treated in the process which takes us to another point really and that is you know, what's in it for whistleblowers? How are they treated? Where do they end up? Um, and something that I came across in this book is a, a law in the U.S., um, which is called the False Claims Act. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly enough, this False Claims Act has its origins in, in the 1800s, 1863, where defense contractors were basically defrauding the military and, um, Abraham Lincoln was really upset about this and uh, with a, a congressman who was actually an abolitionist, uh, abolitionist, they introduced the False Claims Act, which allows a whistleblower to shame the proceeds of what you recover. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of an incentive there to say if you whistleblow and it's not malicious and something's found, you could get a, a percent of what's recovered. And... Um, in, in this one story in this book, you see this act being used um, recently to reward a whistleblower. So whistleblowers tend to be victimized. And, um, you know, if you speak to, I think there was an article in one Sunday newspaper a few weeks ago, uh, four or five women that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And you just listen to their journey of whistleblowing and what's happened to them institutionally and so forth. You see that... Um, they, they, we need to do something more creative around uh, – we look, we do have the Protected Disclosures Act in South Africa. But um, this uh, False Claims Act, which allows a, an individual to sue on behalf of the state or the king way back then, um, puts an additional incentive in the system for whistleblowers mm -hmm. to – 
to act based on the moral courage, but also to be rewarded financially at the end of the day, I suppose. So interesting when you get the laws right, the the one in the um, financial, uh, I think it's in the uh, Financial Services Act, where if a witness changes or, or tells the truth, they will then not be held liable as long as they're shown to be cha- telling the truth, which, ha- which actually broke open the whole uh, VBS saga. Um, if it wasn't for that, and, and uh, reading uh, the report uh, that was put together at the time, it, it said that there were six or seven of these witnesses who changed 180 degrees when, they were, when it was explained to them that they, they cannot be held liable if they tell the truth. I guess what you've just uh, touched on here is something else that, that is urgently needed in South Africa because those whistleblowers, and I've interviewed a lot of them, they always say um, if, you, if you knew the consequences, the social consequences of, of what was coming in, they might have thought twice. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I think it, it really draws attention to the fact that we, we just need to constantly be looking at our whistleblower protections, legislation and incentives because, um, you know, if, if we agree with Daniel Ellsberg that whistleblowers are the lifeblood of a republic, <laughs> then we need to make sure that there's an environment for people to feel that um, they, you know, once they've resolved that they need to let wrongdoings be known, that um, they're stepping into an environment which will not leave them worse off for having told the truth. Indeed, and contributing to that lifeblood or yes. to, to putting, putting more red, red cells into the, into the, yeah. the bloodstream. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us yeah. about Malcolm Gladwell, the latest Gladwell book. You know, now, now when I was uh, thinking about our uh, chat today, I realized there's actually a connection between these two books because in... in um, Talking to so when you look firstly at whistleblowers raising an alarm, and you you know certainly from these incidents I'm reading about, people would contact their superiors or the hotline or whatever, and there's generally for a whole range of reasons, an initial silence or people are not you know no one gets back to them or there's a frustration about you know I have this information and no one's listening to me or they tell me they'll get back to me and I don't hear from them. Now, in talking to strangers, Malcolm Gladwell has an entire section <laughs> on what he calls um, defaulting truth, uh, default, uh, defaulting to the truth, basically, where you're talking to somebody, you know that there's a problem with what you're hearing, but you think, oh, well, maybe it's just me. You know, so so this book really is about the exchanges that happens between strangers, and you know he uses he tells the story by looking at again several incidents that we will have read about in the popular uh, press. You know the uh, Sandra Bland story: the woman was pulled over by a policeman and ended up uh, dead in a prison cell a few days later. Um, he looks at the Amanda Knox case. You know, the uh, student who was accused of murder in the U.S. And then a very famous spy uh, who was really highly rated by uh, the, the uh, Department of Intelligence in the U.S. And they knew there was a spy, but 
despite interviewing her many times, um, the early investigators just couldn't believe that it was her until something dramatically sort of uh, pointed to the fact that it was her. So it's really um, a book about helping one understand the deep linkages between culture, history, and personality when you talk to someone. You know, so for example, he looks at the Boston bomber, the young man who was on death row in the U.S., and the juror saying, "Well, he showed no remorse." You know, and then he unpacks what um, sentiment a young Muslim Chechen male is expected to display under adverse conditions. Mm-hmm. And so was it stoicism or was it lack of remorse? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's fascinating just to – it, it leaves one wondering. I mean, how many times have you been in a meeting, Alec, where you leave the meeting and then later on you discover that you were in a different meeting because people have different understandings of what was said or agreed or what the outcome was? Especially, you know? so, especially in London. They talk in code over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know? Mm. Good so, um, so it's really, uh, it's really about that. And, um, I guess the linkage that I was sort of seeing between talking to strangers and crisis of conscience is, is, uh, you know, this whole notion of defaulting to the truth, you know? Mm. Mm. And they sound, yeah. they both sound like, uh, must read books. Definitely the, the Gladwell one I'm looking forward to. Have you read his others? Yes, I have. And I sort of, uh, Decided to give him a break for a while, but then uh, this one was uh, – it's, it's a very easy yet engaging read. You which, know, so uh, – Roger, which of his books, which of Malcolm Gladwell's books do you like the most? Um, I enjoyed Outliers. I thought it was really good. Excellent, excellent. I think yeah. I would if, – if yeah. I was having a vote, I'd, I'd vote with you on yeah. that one as well. It's, yeah. It's but special. Can, I, can I raise another book before we wrap up? Of course. With this being budget week, if you don't mind. Mm. Um, you know, one of my all-time best books that I've read, and I go back to it from time to time, is a book by the historian Barbara Tuchman. It's called The March of Folly. Aha. And, and it's really um, – it's a historical overview and looks at it looks at events in history where where policymakers took decisions despite being told at the time that they were the wrong decisions. So it's not about hindsight; it's about doing something different despite empirical evidence at the time telling you it's the wrong way to go. You know, and I think um, it's a we're at a very important moment uh, in South Africa for our policymakers, and uh, we, we're going to choose between the march of folly or doing the right thing as we get out of uh, the situation that we're in. So that's a book I would recommend um, to cabinet. that every policymaker reads. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I, I read uh, a book of hers about World War One, and there was very there was similar. It wasn't co- it wasn't the one you mentioned now, but there was similar. Um, Stupid mistakes that were made, which caused what was then supposedly the war to end all wars. Of course, it didn't, but it it uh, it, it was unprecedented. Um, but the stupidity in the decision making leading up to it had to be understood to be beholden. And, and I guess, as you say now, um, we see it all over the world, don't we? That decisions are being made, perhaps on the fly, perhaps for 
ideological reasons, perhaps because of just a lack of, of open-mindedness. Yeah, you know, and, and again, if you, if, uh, you know, if, if one links, if you want to link talking to strangers to the March of Folly, there's a very, uh, there's a fantastic chapter in here which goes through Neville Chamberlain's overtures to Hitler before the Second World War, where he actually goes to Germany, meets with Hitler, and basically says, you know, this man doesn't want to go to war. And, of course, that was absolute folly at the time, and a lot of people were saying, don't do it, don't meet with him. This man is insidious, you know. And so, um, but, you know, he met with him, and he saw something that, (laughs) <laughs> the rest of the world did not see, and he he thought he had found peace for for all time, and he was wrong, you know. So um, anyway, happy reading. It's really it's it's a fantastic book. Ah, thanks to Roger Jardine, the chairman of First Rand, for sharing his thoughts on books. Here's another update for you in uh, this week's edition of Rational Radio. Pierre van der Hoofen is an expert in areas surrounding cannabis. He's an entrepreneur who's made it his business over the last few years to get to know this industry well. And he was particularly interested, no doubt, in the part of the State of the Nation address by Sura Ramaphosa, the President of South Africa, which dealt with cannabis. So here's uh, Pierre to give us some insights into what it all means. Uh, you know, we have we submitted license applications and permit applications, and we're waiting with bated breath um, to receive these kind of permissions to to, to launch the industry. Um, and I think that will c- continue. With uh, the, the problem with the law is it's it's fundamentally wrong. The law starts with a statement that the cannabis plant is illegal, and from then on everything's wrong. <laughs> but that's just the way it is. So we wait. Um, We've put in applications. There are lots of applications. I think there were a whole batch that were approved um, uh, research applications late last year. So that process is underway. Um, we just we just hope it happens quickly. But if the law says one thing and the president says another, surely the law must get changed quite quickly. Yeah, and that's under process. So SAPRA have issued a presentation where instead of changing the main law, they're going to change the regulations that sit underneath that. Uh, so they're going to reschedule the plant and they're going to reschedule derivatives from the plant like CBD. Um, so that process is underway. But the law as it stands says you can farm medical cannabis on condition you get a license from the Department of Health. Um, what the law hasn't really said yet is that you can farm hemp and as long as you get a permit or some kind of authority or regulatory hurdle you've got to go through with the Department of Agriculture. Now that is something quite new, which means hemp, uh, which is really cannabis with low THC, needs to be rescheduled. So the answer is the same thing. The schedules have to change in the law that makes this possible. But a lot of that is actually in place already, believe it or not. It's just not being implemented properly. So what exactly did Sir Ramaphosa say in his State of the Nation address that was relevant about the cannabis industry? Well, I'll read it to you. This year we will open up and regulate the commercial use of hemp products 
great. Providing opportunities for small-scale farmers and formulate policy on the use of cannabis products for medicinal use to build this industry in line with global trends. So the last bit, yes, we've already been doing that. There was nothing new in that statement, actually. The only thing that was really interesting was to say there's a difference between cannabis and hemp. And then what is hugely significant and something I've been fighting personally for for a while is we cannot take the international regulations because they just exclude for small farmers. So he's, he's, he's hooked onto the principle that we will include small farmers, which I think is fantastic because that's what we really need. Our political imperatives are about job creation and rural economic development, and they're different from other parts of the world. So we need to treat the regulations differently. So if, if, if there was anything significant in what he said, it was the words providing opportunities for small-scale farmers. I think that's very important. What are the international players doing about this? We hear rumors that the Chinese, for instance, have come in and bought huge tracts of land that they're going to be applying to cannabis. We hear that the Canadians are here in full force. How would what the resident said about small farmers impact their potential investment? Well, I think the entire industry's got to start from the position of this is our country, we'll do our own rules and we'll protect our own people like every other country does. Um, the Canadians are yeah, because they know that this is where the best land race trains come from. They know that the climate is perfect. There's rumors about the Chinese. Uh, they can't buy, but they're, they're getting the right to use tracts of land in Pondo land. Now, personally, I think that's a, that's a, that's a, a big problem. I mean, we've got a, We've got foreign direct investment, which is great, but if you're bringing in Chinese strains and you're putting in them in the heart of the sort of local land race strains, you, you're going to cause a uh, – that, that's not good for us at all. Um, yeah, so they, they, they're looking. Our view is that you need to create a number of big South African-owned cannabis companies that can compete internationally. You need to focus on beneficiation and value add. Don't turn us into farmers because that's what they want. The, whole, the only reason the world's coming here is they believe, and it's true, that we can produce cannabis as a, at a fraction of the cost of anybody else. Um, but we, that's not what we want to be. We don't want to be a cheap labor supplier. Um, we really should set our views on being something a lot more than that, which is add value to the industry, keep some of the wealth in the country, um, transfer skills, develop industry, become an engine for growth way beyond cultivation. So if I hear you correctly, it's almost like there are parallels here from the minerals rush of the last century where the British arrived and, well, because it was a colony, they made South Africa the only country in the world where the mineral rights did not vest with the state but could actually vest with individual companies. So they could come here, pull out the minerals and uh, ship the raw materials and not develop the local economy. I think it's a spot-on observation. Um, you're absolutely right, and we can't allow that to happen again. Um, yeah, it's, it's in... Uh, in some of the discussion forums, it's, it's, it's referred to openly as the second colonization and turning, uh, turning South Africa into farmers again. You know, so we mustn't allow that. We must do more than that. And how, do, how does one ensure that there is no repeat? Well, you need a very efficient regulator. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have a, an, an efficient regulator. Um, so the, the, the criteria for BE, for example, is completely unknown. 
there's some people running around saying this is a black industry and all only black people can play. You know, I don't agree with that. Um, and on the other hand, the actual regulations in themselves are silent on, on, on BE, which is actually in, in breach of the PFMA. It's, it's, you've got to have some kind of BE criteria with government contracts. So it's a bit of an anomaly. It's a, it's a bit of a mess, quite frankly. Um, this stuff needs to be clarified. The people need to do policy work. Um, they need to build a framework. They need to build a master plan. Um, now, the first drafts of such a master plan are out and they're being distributed. You know, whether this will be done efficiently in the best interests of the citizen is uh, is the question that we we must all watch. Pierre van der a expert and participant in the cannabis industry, giving us his views on the State of the Nation inputs from the president. I've interviewed David Woolham many times over the years. He used to be the financial director of African Bank, then became uh, something of a, a shareholder activist, and not least most recently in his targeting of Tongard. He did a lot of work on Tongard, went to Tongard, blew the whistle on Tongard, and got no help whatsoever from the board, despite giving them a presentation. Well, we know where that all landed up. Dave has uh, been waving some flags lately about his old industry, the old unsecured lending sector. And in this changing world, his view is that there is a 450 billion rand pile of debt out there that might come back and really bite the South African economy. We picked up on this conversation uh, this morning, and I'm sure you're going to find it fascinating. We had a, a really good piece, Dave, on Biz News last week, written by a former colleague of mine, Malcolm Rees, where he looked at the 450 billion rand unsecured debt uh, burden, he called it, uh, which hasn't really been addressed that, that carefully. Now, you know as much about unsecured debt as anybody that I've ever come across, given that you were involved at African Bank back in the early days, the Leon Kokinis day, and then, then you blew a whistle and said you, you wanted to uh, tell people that there was, a, there was a lot of danger brewing. Have you kept in, in touch with or kept appraised of the whole unsecured lending market? Um, good morning, Alec. Yeah, um, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, yes, I have. You know, since I left the industry in 2010, I, I've done a number of things, but I, I have kept a close watch on the credit markets, particularly the unsecured markets. As I, I've always felt that it's a, a sector that has really ha- hasn't had a lot of scrutiny in terms of policy. And we tweak around the edges but I, I remain concerned that it's a, it's an area of the market that has, is brewing slowly and will, uh, from time to time, uh, you know, ca- cause difficulties. And I see one of those kind of periods coming up now again, unfortunately. But it's so it's so interesting if you have a look at the way that the world is changing. We're going from shareholders, in other words, the business of business is business, to stakeholders. We, if you want to be a business, you've got to have a social license almost. Uh, we go, we're seeing how people are changing their eating habits away from ways of destroying the world. Ah, and the same thing with energy and, and unsecured lending. It just it just feels in a way as though. Not enough attention is being given to what happens once the loan has been made or 
what is behind the motivation for making the loan in the first place. In other words, are those who are taking the loans being uh, abused? Are they being victimized in a way by, uh, in the name of profit? Eric, I think it's a, look, it's a very complicated environment with multi-factors, but I'll try and simplify it. I, first of all, I absolutely agree with you. I think we're seeing a, a climate change in terms of the old adage, the Milton Friedman adage of the business of business is business towards uh, more sustainability, recognizing that you know companies operate in societies, within societies, and you know a, a successful business it's very hard to be a successful business in an unsuccessful society. Um, and the short-termism that we possibly have seen in the past is now catching up with us. Um, that's a broader macro level. I think unsecured lending hasn't really benefited from clear policy. Uh, these sustainability initiatives generally require fairly clearly thought through policies that really at the end of the day, any government and the like can can address because when you're a company and your objective is to make profits, it's pretty hard to to restrain yourself or constrain yourself unless you've got clear policy that you have to adhere to. I think there's a problem in South Africa, a broader problem, that we came out of an era in which the vast majority of our people had no access to, were financially excluded had very little access to financial services and had very little access to assets. And in the intervening period since democratization, we've had a, a very clear objective to create financial inclusion. But I think to some extent, financial inclusion has been too broadly defined because there hasn't been the concomitant growth in assets in the lower working classes we would hope to have seen by now more people getting access to or accumulating assets. But when we look at the data, the credit data, we actually see remarkably a significant reduction in mortgage and vehicle finance over the last, say, 12 years. And when you look at it by income level, a very significant reduction. So it's almost that post-2008, we've seen a large number of the working class, this is people earning, say, 20000 a month and less, really being pushed into unsecured lending at very high prices. And very often, we're not seeing then the, the benefit of that funding coming through in asset accumulation. So it's more used and, just for expenses, for meeting I the think, uh, I, th I think that is true. And I think more increasingly in the recent times with the tough economic environment, we're seeing more and more people borrowing to sustain a lifestyle. But what you're really doing then is stealing from your future hmm. because you have to pay the debt back. Someone has to pay it back. But why would the and banks allow that to happen? Because it, it's got to be destructive. I think it is. And, and to some extent, if you can price high enough for it, you can, you can at a risk management level, taking aside the, 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 the morality or ethical aspects or call it sustainability aspects, one can price for it. And as long as your aggregate pricing is sufficient to cover the bad debts, then you just keep rolling forward. I think there is, however, a situation like a game of musical chairs that gets played. And we saw it in 2014 where there was an element of denial that all this credit extension would, you know, would play itself out. And then it didn't. So we saw a significant bubble 
which ultimately led to Abel's decline. But there was across the board, there was an oversupply of credit, too much term extension. And then we pulled back a bit. And what we're seeing now is is reaching and above those levels. Uh, For example, if one just looks at um, the the mortgage and vehicle finance books over the last 12 years, they've grown at about 4% per annum, which is pretty much a percent or two below inflation. So you could say, Secured finance, the banking system hasn't really grown in real terms. But unsecured credit has grown by a compounded 12% per annum, which sounds like not a lot, but when you compound it, it's like a six-fold increase in the book over 12 years. And that's where they make their money. That's where the margins are. Absolutely. That's where the margins are, where there's uh, much higher interest rates and, and, and related fees. And, and so you can afford to take a certain amount of bad debts, but the cost to society is that we've got a situation now where more than 10 million out of 25 million people are, have impaired credit records of one form or another. Um, we see laws being put in place where you're treating the outcome, not the symptom, where people under a certain income level can apply for their debt to be expunged. There's quite a controversial law that was put in place recently, and I think it's, in a way, it's treating the wrong problem. We shouldn't be writing off loans for people that are over-indebted, we should be trying to ensure they don't get over-indebted. Now, it's a complex problem, but I think there hasn't been the right policy-level discussion. And what worries me a bit is that we're actually re-entrenching inequality because so much of this working-class level of income is being allocated to debt servicing costs that people really can't survive. And we're seeing a lot of debt consolidation or debt rolling where you just roll debt forward. And ultimately, you pay the price through just servicing costs that take up a 40 50% of your income. Now, this, this article that we published, written by Malcolm Reese, was actually funded by a hedge fund who are short on Capitec. So clearly, they want to put a question out there or the message out yeah. there that Capitec is not doing the right thing in one way or another. Capitec's answer to us was very simple, that, like a one-liner, we notice, we note what they're saying. But when you ask Capitec, why do you do this, their argument is that if we didn't lend to our customers, they would go to the loan sharks. And the loan sharks charge a whole lot more, and it is, it's a culture that we have within the society. I, 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 I get everything that you said, but what about Capitec's argument in that regard? So, Alec, it's been a it's been a common argument, and I guess one that I would have probably used in my discussions back in the early 2000s when we were defending the growth of of African Bank at that stage. Which, bear in mind that in in 2005, I think that the the, the quarterly credit extension into unsecured credit was about four billion um, per quarter. It's now sitting at about 35, 33 billion. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's an argument that's been used all the way up the growth curve. I think there's two comments. It is true. It's absolutely true that if you create an outlaw-type environment that you get even worse abuse. I mean, think about drugs or uh, think about prohibition with alcohol. It didn't create any um, – it didn't solve the problem. It created a new one. However, the supply of credit requires funding. And, you know, the Mashonistas are there, and they're always there, and they remain there, but they don't have billions and billions of access to funding to actually grant these loans. So the $33 billion that got extended to 
unsecured credit borrowers in the quarter three of 2019 simply would not be available. There's just not enough machinists out there with that kind of funding. So to some extent, we've solved one problem and created a new one. We have solved the problem of absolutely rampant exploitation, which was was dealt with largely by the National Credit Act and subsequent to that, although still a lot of abuse. But we've replaced it now with a burden problem, which is too much debt to people who are really struggling to keep their head above water, mm. albeit at much lower rates than, than they were. But the burden is still there and it's still very heavy. Now, Malcolm's story also made reference to the UN Human Rights Commission. Now, this is something that is a big flag, because when the United Nations starts getting involved in an area like this, you better take, you better pay attention. It's a bit like climate change in, uh, and mm. now the carbon taxes, for instance, carbon emissions. Uh, is, yeah. is this uh, perhaps a, a canary in the unsecured lending uh, coal mine that we hear from the UN? I think it's a globalized issue. I think if one looks back at, you know, if we go forward 20, 30 years and we look back at this period from, say, 1990 to 2020, it'll be the period of, like, extraordinary debt growth. All, all the old uh, measures that we used to measure, like, you know, X percent of debt to GDP, all of those have been blown right through by every country around the world. So whether it's governments that have leveraged up two, three, four hundred percent of their GDP, um, funding deficits that, you know, just putting off the pain till the future to corporates that have geared. And we've seen the, the tremendous pain that gearing has, overgearing has had on the South African corporate market, whether it's, um, you know, the companies like Tongat that failed and Aspen that has struggled and, and many others. I mean, debt has been a common theme. And then at a the consumer level, I think globally there has been an extraordinary growth in debt. People, used to use debt very cautiously and they now use debt very freely. And I think it is a, 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 an issue that people are questioning, is this entrenching inequality? The economists will say, well, access to credit is a good thing, but I think it's access to credit for the right reasons that is a good thing. If you're using it for education or accumulating assets or buying, uh, investing in your own business, that's great. Those, that is the greatest and quickest way for people to lift themselves out of a poverty trap. But credit for consumption actually entrenches those people into the poverty trap and, and re, uh, reinforces inequality. And I think that's a big theme that the UN is looking at. Dave Willem, uh, former financial director of African Bank and a activist uh, on many areas now. Um, as we, you, you might recall, we spoke to him in some detail about Tongat or giving a bit of flag waving on what's going on with unsecured debt, an area that he knows very well.